Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Soundtrack Show with David W. Collins is about to begin. Psycho is not the movie everyone thinks it's going to be. It misleads us as we all take a journey with the movie's main character, only to find out that she's not the main character at all. This is The Soundtrack Show. some news that will delight you. Murder is not dead. I do not refer to the ones splashed all over the front pages. Those are in such bad taste. I refer to those exquisite murders that have a touch of the bizarre and which take fiendish ingenuity to solve. Those are alive and well. One will be presented for your shivering delight immediately. Anything wrong? Am I acting as if there's something wrong? Hey! Your girlfriend stole $40,000. Where are you going? I'm looking for a private island. You mean an institution? A madhouse? There are plenty of motels in this area. She spent last Saturday night at the Bates Motel. We just keep on lighting the lights and following the formalities. Isn't this the first place that looks like it's hiding from the world? I'm sure there's something wrong out there, and I have to know what. My mother, uh, she isn't quite herself today. Norman Bates' mother has been dead and buried in Green Lawn Cemetery for the past ten years. I declare. Don't you touch me. Don't put me down. I don't like you going to that house alone. I can handle a sick old woman. (gasps) It's not as if she were a maniac. She just goes a little mad sometimes. Ah! We all go a little mad sometimes. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and on this episode, we'll be discussing a masterpiece of American movie horror, the 1960 movie Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, originally from Paramount Pictures and now Universal Studios, with a score by Bernard Herrmann. Ah, 1960. Wow, the middle of the 20th century. So much happening at that time. John F. Kennedy was sworn in as President of the United States in 1960. The U.S. officially entered the Vietnam War. Fidel Castro nationalized American oil, sugar, and other U.S. interests in Cuba. And a young boxer named Cassius Clay, later known as Muhammad Ali, won his first professional fight after previously winning the gold medal in Rome at the Olympic Games. The Flintstones premiered in 1960, and Chubby Checker asked us to do the twist— Antonio Banderas 
Hugh Grant, U2's Bono, and the Etch-A-Sketch were all born in 1960. Aluminum cans were used for the first time, and Dr. Kazuo Hashimoto invented the telephone answering machine. The book, To Kill a Mockingbird, was released in 1960, and the top films of the year included Ben-Hur, Operation Petticoat, Can-Can, and you guessed it, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. You know, it's hard to state how influential this movie and its film score really were in 1960. And it's also hard to state how important the film score is to the movie itself. Even Hitchcock said that 33% of the film's success was due to the music. I think it's higher than that, to be honest. But I am, of course, biased, as I'm sure you are if you're listening to this show. But anyway, as I said, it's hard to describe how important and influential this film and its score are to movies and movie soundtracks. But here on The Soundtrack Show, we are indeed going to attempt to describe it together. Let's start with some background. By 1960, Alfred Hitchcock was a master filmmaker, having made dozens and dozens of hit films already by then. Known as the master of suspense, his hit films included Rebecca, Saboteur, Shadow of a Doubt, Lifeboat, Rope, Strangers on a Train, Dial in for Murder, Rear Window to Catch a Thief, and more. He even had his own TV show from 1955 to 1965 called Alfred Hitchcock Presents, an anthology series of dramas, thrillers, and mysteries. When that aired in 1955, he had already been directing films for three decades. So between the TV show and all the cameos he did in his own films, plus the success of those films, certainly by the time we get to Psycho in 1960, Alfred Hitchcock was already a household name. And then there's composer Bernard Herrmann, who by 1960 had already scored dozens of movies himself, including many of Hitch's biggest hits. It's his story, Herrmann's story, and his music that we will be focusing on during this episode. Bernard Herrmann was born in New York City on June 29, 1911. At a young age, his father encouraged him to study music, and by the time he was a teenager, had studied at the Juilliard School in Manhattan. By the age of 20, he was conducting his own orchestra, and eventually got involved in radio, working at the Columbia Broadcasting System, known commonly nowadays as CBS. He was there as a staff conductor, and two years after he began that, he was appointed music director, and then within a decade was appointed chief conductor of the CBS Symphony Orchestra. While he was there at CBS, his radio programs introduced more new musical works than any other program of its time. Bernard Herrmann, even early in his career at this stage, was a forward-thinking musician. For example, he loved composer Charles Ives, an experimental modernist composer who was virtually unknown at the time. And perhaps it was this revolutionary, forward-thinking attitude that attracted the attention of a young theater director named Orson Welles, who Herman met during his time at the CBS Orchestra. Herman was the man conducting the orchestra for Welles' infamous live broadcast of War of the Worlds in October of 1938, which was dramatized and aired in the style of a news broadcast and caused a nationwide panic as people actually believed that the U.S. was being attacked by aliens. Herman eventually went to Hollywood with Orson Welles and provided the score for his most famous movie of all time, Citizen Kane, in 1941. And though Bernard Herman worked with Orson Welles quite a bit, 
That's not his most famous collaboration. Perhaps the most famous in all of film score history is not with Orson Welles, but with Alfred Hitchcock. Beyond Psycho, Herman scored several others with Hitch, The Trouble with Harry, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and Marnie. He's also even credited on The Birds as a sound consultant. You see, before there was Spielberg and Williams, there was Hitchcock and Herman. Now, there are a lot of stylistic traits to Bernard Herrmann's music, and we'll get there as we start listening to Psycho. So, let's talk about this particular production. Psycho, loosely based on a 1959 novel by Robert Bloch, is such a famous movie that we all know it, even if we haven't seen it. What do I mean by that? Well, it's been in so many documentaries, been parodied and imitated so many times. The shower scene is so famous. The music cue in the shower is so recognizable, etc., that it can be easy to dismiss it as that famous slasher movie thing that we all know about. But do we? Do we really know why it's so famous? It's hard to imagine being an audience walking into Psycho knowing nothing. Cold. In a way, Hitchcock would most likely claim that for people like us, born after Psycho was a phenomenon, maybe not all of us, but many of us listening to this show, the movie is practically ruined for us. And in so many ways, he may actually be right. Because what audiences experienced in 1960, going in cold, was so revolutionary, so new, so shocking, even after years of horror films coming from Hollywood and thrillers coming from Hitchcock, that movie reviewers were actually changing their initial mixed reviews of Psycho because the box office sales were so incredibly strong. In fact, for a movie that received such a tepid critical response, it's amazing that the film was nominated for four Academy Awards, all because it was just that popular with the movie going public. So, what's the story? What's the big deal about Psycho then? What did they see in 1960, or more importantly here, that made this movie one of the greatest movies of all time, according to the American Film Institute and countless other publications. Well, Psycho is a perfect combination of story, production, surprise, and music. Oh, 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 the music. I'm going to go ahead and just say this right now. Without Bernard Herrmann's score, we would not be talking about this film, Psycho, today. At all. Nobody would. No one. This movie, Psycho, was a cheap fly-by-night production, even by Hitch's standards. But Hitchcock and Herman knew how to make it special. This was the height of this creative duo's output. And the impact of the music versus the simplicity of the film stands in higher relief than any other picture that they worked on together. For one thing, Psycho was cheap. Paramount Pictures, they didn't even want it. So Hitch decided to front his own money and shoot it over at Universal for less than a million dollars. He paid star Janet Lee a fraction of what she normally made. He shot it in black and white to save money. And yes, also for its stylistic noirish look, but definitely far cheaper than, say, Technicolor. He waived his expensive director's fee and bet on the movie's success by opting for 60% of the earnings on the picture instead. He even paid Bernard Herrmann less than his normal composition rate, all to keep costs down. And in 1959, when the movie was being filmed, 
Hitchcock decided he was going to use his TV crew from Alfred Hitchcock Presents rather than a feature film crew, as the TV crew was cheaper, more flexible, and he was more comfortable with them anyway. So, against all odds and grumbling studio executives, Psycho went into production. Shot entirely on the Universal lot, on sets, with the few exceptions of background plates shot by a B-unit on highways in Southern California and some shots in Arizona and one scene in a car lot in Bakersfield, it was all shot on sets on the Universal lot. Now, before we move on to some musical facts, I have to say that if you haven't seen Psycho, there are a few things to keep in mind. Number one, let's just get this out of the way. The movie features some gruesome, mature content, even by today's standards. And I have to spoil the plot just to talk about the music. You've been warned. Number two, the movie leads you to think it's about Janet Lee's character, Marion Crane. She was the biggest star in the movie, after all, Janet Lee. And all of the advertising, the movie posters, etc., revolved around her. But as it turns out, it's not about Janet Lee or her character. It's about Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, and Bates's mother. Though we're led to believe fully that this movie is about Marion Crane and the man she's in love with at the top of the movie, her boyfriend Sam Loomis, nope, nope, it's a red herring that is carefully set up by Hitchcock, aided beautifully by Herman's music. Number three, audiences knew nothing going in. Nada. You see, for the first time, Hitchcock made movie theaters force a rule on their moviegoers. No late seating. The scene is the DeMille Theater in New York. The entire motion picture industry knows that Psycho is being exhibited with a special presentation policy, a creation of Paramount Pictures' showmanship. Listen now to the heart of the policy. I've suggested that Psycho be seen from the beginning. In fact, this is more than a suggestion. It is required. And here is what Broadway saw. No one, but no one, will be admitted to the theater after the start of each performance of Psycho. The audience had been sold this concept. With it, they were sold on Psycho. Mr. Hitchcock tells you, as he told them, why. This, of course, is to help you enjoy Psycho more. We really have only your enjoyment in mind. Back in the days when people would just go to the movies and walk in halfway through and maybe stick around to catch what they missed during the next showing if they really liked it, or if they loved it, they'd stick around and see the whole thing even again. Hitchcock forced a policy that made the news when Psycho debuted. Absolutely nobody was to be seated once the movie began. This annoyed critics, but made the public so curious that there were lines down the street to get in. The campaign began with newspaper teaser ads calling attention to explaining selling the policy. The keep the story a secret idea supplemented the policy. Special Hitchcock ads well in advance, announced why it was desirable to see Psycho from the beginning. Close to opening day, another Hitchcock ad told why it was required and clearly supplied the audience with the time schedule of Psycho performances, as did every display ad before Psycho opened. The directory ads, after opening, confirmed the Psycho policy, gave the show times clearly. When they came to the theater, 
the audience saw Hitchcock in person. Well, not really. But with him, there was a real live Pinkerton policeman to emphasize the policy story which the newspaper ads had pre-sold. We won't allow you to cheat yourself. You must see Psycho from the beginning to end to enjoy it fully. Therefore, do not expect to be admitted into the theater after the start of each performance of the picture. We say no one, and we mean no one. Not even the manager's brother, the president of the United States, or the Queen of England. God bless her. Everywhere in print and sound, the policy was emphatically and entertainingly told. I insist that you do not tell your friends the little, um, tiny, horrifying secrets of Psycho after you see it. I would also like to point out that Psycho is most enjoyable when viewed beginning at the beginning and proceeding to the end. As a result of this rule, the audience didn't have any surprises ruined for them. And what was the surprise Hitchcock was trying to keep so secret? Well, it's one that we've had, quote, ruined for us now for decades. In a complete defiance of movie star convention and in a total subversion of audience expectation, movie star Janet Lee is killed off within the first act of the movie and done so in a gruesome way that audiences would never forget. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. Composer Bernard Herrmann wrote amazing film music with Hitchcock and his movies. And oftentimes, when people talk about music in general, they use the word color to describe something a little bit more abstract. Like, for example, I think of Korngold's score for King's Row as being filled with color. The different sounds of brass and the timbres of woodwinds versus strings, or uh, the sounds of glistening harps and bells or powerful percussion. I think of the colors that the unique voices of the orchestra can provide. Similarly, Herman wrote very colorful music for movies as well, like Hitchcock's North by Northwest. too much.
For Psycho, Herman made a very unusual but very, very important decision. For this black-and-white thriller, Psycho, Herman decided that the score would be performed entirely by strings. Just violins, violas, cellos, and contrabasses. No brass, no winds, no percussion, just the string section. One day toward the end of the shoot, and I said, uh, what size orchestra are you going to use? And he told me, and he said, it's going to be all strings. And I was just flabbergasted because I had never heard of anybody doing a movie score with all strings. And when I heard it, of course, I realized what, what he had done. He had just taken everybody's guts and used them for music. I worked with Bernard Herrmann on two films directed by Brian De Palma. One was called Sisters and the other was Obsession. He had very interesting ideas about how to approach the music based on the content of the material. For instance, he's described his score for Psycho as a black and white score, only strings, no percussion, no brass, no wind, because he wanted to reflect the black and white stark quality of the picture. Some people have said that this was his way of compensating for his reduced fee, but I think more importantly, and certainly more compelling for, for us, you know, to talk about creatively, the strings, the string section, is arguably the most expressive voice in all of the orchestra with its ability to convey softness and beauty. But then it's also equally armed with the ability to totally horrify us. This was a brilliant choice by Herman, as it puts us in this black and white world and lulls us into the journey of Marion Crane, and later of Sam Loomis and Marion's sister Lila, and of course, Norman Bates and his mother. So let's go ahead and listen to the opening of Psycho. Notice how expressive the strings are. They're being struck hard, by the way, almost violently. The microphones are in on the strings very, very close. So you can really hear the attack of the violin bow as it hits the strings. I mean, they almost squawk at you as if birds are being disrupted by a violent force of nature. Listen to how violent those strings sound. They shriek at us. They jump out of the black and white images. And then now there's this beautiful high-pitched melody, almost like a lone voice trying to fly away from the madness. Before it's swallowed back into the frenzy of bowed strings. The sound of this music, and really a sound that Bernard Herrmann was very fond of, is this chord, this sound. This is what is known as a minor major seventh, meaning it's a minor chord, but has a note at the top that is a major seventh away from the root. making it up to the octave, but not quite. For you musician types, this is a sound that comes from the melodic minor or harmonic minor scales and is extremely unsettling, totally void of resolve because of that seventh. By the way, he used this same sound in vertigo, only he separated out the notes of the minor major chord. 
going down the steps of that chord, but also simultaneously going up. in Psycho is dancing around this minor major seventh chord. There it is. So this is one of the building blocks. This minor major seventh chord is one of the building blocks to Psycho's score, and it's something to, to keep an ear out for while you're listening. Another famous trait of Bernard Herrmann's is that he uses small musical phrases, which is perfect for film scoring, but he uses these small little musical phrases over and over and over again. And what he does with those phrases is not only repeat them, but he shifts them up sometimes and down sometimes in keys. He shifts the whole melody in parallel. Let me play a quick breakdown for you. What's going on in Herman is that one of the most common sounds you hear in tonality is the so-called interval of the third, which would sound like this as a minor third and like this as a major third. And um, you hear this, for instance, in the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. But rather than move towards some kind of resolution that gives us a sense of rest, of respite, of comfort, of uh, we finally wrapped everything up, Herman tends to use the thirds in parallel series. So if Herman had written Beethoven's Fifth, it would have sounded more like this. And this is exactly the sound you have at the beginning of Herman's score for Brian De Palma's sister. Now, this is not going anywhere. This is not going towards a, a resolution. It is just sort of remaining static. It is remaining suspenseful. It is uh, not giving, getting you towards a point of rest. A good example of this use of parallel thirds can be heard, for instance, in this kind of suspense music that Herman did for Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much. And what's important about this is not that it, it is revolutionizing musical language, but it's revolutionizing to a certain degree the relationship uh, of music to the visual image. Because Herman, I think, realized more, more than almost any other composer that uh, if you use the standard rhythms and uh, structures of music, that they're going to work against the cinematic flow. Herman uses very short uh, cells of musical meanings that he can really play with almost at will uh, with respect to the cinematic image and not have it interfere. There are wonderful examples of this in Psycho. One great example is the music that he wrote for Marion. But first, a word about plot for what we think is our main character, Marion, at the top of this movie. We meet Marion and her boyfriend, Sam Loomis, at the very top of the movie. Marion wants to get married, but they can't afford it. Times are tough. Loomis, after a lunchtime rendezvous with Marion in a hotel room, which, by the way, was a first, an unmarried couple shown in bed together in 1960. Anyway, after this scene, he leaves Phoenix, Arizona, which is where they are, to head back to his home in Fairvale, California. Marion goes back to her job as a secretary at a real estate company. We sympathize with her as she feels lost and alone. Let's take a listen to the music that Herman provides for Marion and her relationship with Sam.
See how this theme rises up, but then falls. The melody rises, almost hopefully, and falls. But more than that, each time it rises and falls, it moves in parallel to a lower register or key. It's sinking, then sinking again. It's hopes of a happy life slowly dying, the optimism of youth being beaten down by the hardships of the world. Marion and Sam, it seems, according to Herman, are being kept apart by harsh realities, financial woes, distance, money. This parallel movement of a repeating line is kind of a soft version of this technique of Herman's, and it also shows off the flexibility of using just strings in this score. More than that, it builds sympathy for these two, which we're going to need because what happens next is Marion decides to steal $40,000 in cash from her real estate office and flee Phoenix for Fairvale, California in a moment of madness so that she can start a new life and hopefully, finally, find happiness. Like Norman Bates says later on, we all go a little mad sometimes. Now, what's interesting is that next, for the better part of a half hour, as Marion is on the run leaving Phoenix for California, the movie starts to feel so incredibly tense. Why? Well, let me start by describing what we see. We see Marion driving in her car. She looks worried. We see her driving through the desert. She looks worried. We see her driving through the rain. She looks worried. The only thing that really happens during this whole sequence is that Marion drives away. I mean, she does arouse some suspicion from a police officer. She, at one point, sells her car for another used car, pays cash. But there's no real action. I mean, certainly not for a thriller or horror film. So why does it feel so tense? You guessed it. The music is doing the majority of the work here, I would argue. That prologue music that I played earlier comes back several times throughout this sequence as Marion is driving through the madness that the strings are providing. It's the music that's giving us all of the emotional context. Editor Paul Hirsch, of Star Wars fame, worked with Bernard Herrmann on his very last film score, Taxi Driver, for director Martin Scorsese. This was years after Psycho. So Paul Hirsch at one point took a real interest in the score for Psycho, and at one point when there were interview cameras rolling, he had this to say about these driving sequences. I was home one night and Psycho was on, and I saw a scene in which Janet Lee had stolen some money. The, shot, the, the scene consisted of three very simple shots. There was a close-up of her driving, there was a point of view of the road in front of her, and there was a point of view of the police car behind her reflected in the rearview mirror. The material was so simple, and yet the scene was absolutely gripping. And I reached over and I turned off the sound to the television set, and I realized 
that the extreme emotional duress I was experiencing was due almost entirely to the music. What you actually saw was a very good-looking girl driving a car. Could have been to the supermarket. And then she said to me, well, put voices occasionally. They're missing the money now. I said, that's all right, but that still doesn't make it terrible. And that's when we both agreed the idea we'll bring back some music, which gives the audience something terrible is going to happen to this girl. It's cartoon. So, yeah, it's the music that's driving the tension here because the visual isn't really much to write home about. And he wasn't the only one that felt the music is really what made this movie. Here's a clip from writer Joseph Stefano, who saw a rough cut of the newly assembled film sitting with Hitchcock before music was added. I then didn't see anything until I saw the rough cut. I thought it was terrible. (laughs) When I saw the rough cut, I, I thought it was truly a terrible movie. And, I, and I, I couldn't say this to Hitch. He was sitting beside me, and uh, he looked at me, and he went, patted my knee and said, it's just a rough cut, Joseph. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, okay, you know, he's the master, and it's in his hands. Next time I saw it, I, it, it was a totally different movie. It was all tight and paced and beautifully put together and then I knew that it was it was a good movie then I saw it with the music and nearly you know fell out of my seat the music really wowed me I'd never heard anything like that the point is clear it's Herman who is giving us all of the emotional context for this film he's the one providing the chills and thrills I mean, we're looking at somewhat pedestrian visuals in black and white, driving and driving. We don't even know what this movie is about yet, but we know that something is wrong. And things are going to get worse. We don't know how, but because of the music, we can feel it. Back to the small, repeating musical phrases and parallel moving musical lines. There are a few more that I want to point out. When Marion finally finds the Bates Motel and she checks into her hotel room, She's looking around the hotel room, and we hear this. Hmm, listen to that phrase. Huh, it's almost like Yep, yep, it is. It's Dies Irae in reverse. It's the four-note Dies Irae played backwards. Again and again. Wow. The music is that voice in the theater telling Marion to get out of there! Get out of there! We don't know what's wrong as an audience, but the music is like, get out, get out, get out. In fact, it's funny because Anthony Perkins is this young, handsome Hollywood star, and he was intentionally cast to set up this false expectation as she's checking in to the hotel 
It's setting up this false expectation with us, the audience, that a typical Hollywood love triangle is probably going to play into this plot. I mean, Perkins is charming as Norman Bates. He's even sympathetic because he's talking about caring for his mother. I mean, he seems kind of a normal guy. I mean, he, he, wait, he's into taxidermy? You know, foxes and chimps. Some, some people even stuff dogs and cats, but, oh, I can't do that. I think only birds look well stuffed because, well, because they're kind of passive to begin with. It's a strange hobby. Curious. Uncommon, too. Huh. Okay. But he's got a sick mother, okay, you know, and so he's caring for her. That's nice. So he's still normal, but what? Oh, no. He's a peeping Tom. He's peeping through the wall. In a creepy, creepy scene, we see Norman Bates spying on Marion through a hole in the wall. And listen to the music. phrase moving up or down in parallel motion. It almost puts us in a state of constant tension and provides a much needed rhythmic pace to this scene. We know that something is going to happen. We just have no idea what. How is star Janet Lee going to deal with this weird situation? I don't know. Huh. Well, look at that. It appears she's having second thoughts about stealing the money. She seems taken with Norman's story about caring for his mother. Pretty clear to me she's deciding to return the money. She does a little math to see how much she's spent on a little piece of paper. And then she tears up the paper and she flushes that torn up paper down the toilet. Which, by the way, for 1960 was also really shocking. Up until now, a flushing toilet had never been seen in an American film. True story. Okay, whew. The madness is dying down now. She's gonna do what's right. She's thought it through. She'll return the money in the morning. Yeah, this is fine. I'm fine. We're fine. Now for her just to freshen up from the long drive with a, with a quick shower. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Film music must supply what actors cannot say. The music can give to an audience their feelings. It must really convey what the word cannot do. If you're dealing with an emotional subject... Uh, this is the complete purpose of a film score. But if you're dealing with a picture such as, well, a Hitchcock film or anyone's film or by anyone of enormous skill and taste in the making of a film, as a film is only made of segments of film that are put together and either artificially linked by dissolves or cuts or montages and many ways in which a film can be made. It is the function of music to cement these pieces into one design that the audience feels that their sequence is inevitable. Now, it is one of the paradoxes of cinema music that 
music correctly used can be music of very poor quality and be effective or can be music of magnificent quality and also serve its purpose. But the strange thing about cinema, and this would go for television film, is that no one really knows why music is needed. I would say after a lifetime in it, I could not tell you why. But it is not complete without it. People do write the paper saying you shouldn't have music in, in your television and it's all too, the noise is too loud and all this. This is rubbish. All you'd have to do would be to look at a film without music and it would be almost unbearable to look at it. And I feel that it is a responsibility of any gifted composer of our time to do a certain amount of creative work in these media. I believe that all composers at all times had to do music of their time and meet the uh, the music that was needed. I mean, after all, Mozart and Haydn were not above writing dinner music while their patrons ate, and they were not above writing music for special singers or instrumentalists. And uh, on the other hand, Bach certainly thought nothing of writing his weekly cantata for a church service. It's only a question of the time one lives in. The present time we live in is cinema and television is the great vehicle for contemporary music. And by contemporary music, I mean that you can have experimentation in both those mediums in the most avant-garde musical techniques, and an audience will accept it providing it is compatible with the dramatic situation of the film. What we're about to discuss is probably the most famous scene from any horror film in American film history. I can safely say this without exaggeration. Even if you've never seen Psycho, you've seen footage of this scene. It runs for about three minutes and contains a whopping 50 film cuts and 77 different camera angles. But the most remarkable part about this scene is, without a doubt, the music. I'm just going to do this really quickly. The camera pushes in, the silhouetted woman pulls back the curtain, and suddenly Bernard Herrmann changes the movie music world with the most horrifying music ever put to film. The music is sharp sounding, piercing like the blade of a knife, or the screaming of a victim, or the crying of shrieking birds. It is pure horror coming from the orchestra. It's followed by a low-pitched exchange between violins, celli, and basses. How did Bernard Herrmann make something so terrifying? What techniques did he use? This is one of the most famous pieces of film music in the history of movies. Why? Well, first of all, let's consider the register, the high pitch. It's unpleasant. It's an almost pained human sound, using the violin's ability to glissando and bend notes, while simultaneously attacking them as ferociously as they can be attacked with a violin bow. They sound almost human, blurring the lines between movie music and the characters on the screen. Second, we have to consider the nature of the collection of pitches that he used. As Bernard Herrmann says, it's avant-garde, it's modernist, it's expressive in a non-melodic way, and represents pure cinematic music. Remember earlier when he said this? Cinema and television is the great vehicle 
for contemporary music. And by contemporary music, I mean that you can have experimentation in both those mediums in the most avant-garde musical techniques. And an audience will accept it, providing it is compatible with the dramatic situation of the film. This is what he means. The actual notes that are being played are known as a tone cluster. They're all close together. D-sharp, E-natural, F-sharp, F-natural. A brief appearance of an A-natural is the only clue we're given for where the key center is, almost like an opening tritone in the key of A. But what Herman does is that he spreads this tone cluster across four octaves. Actually, maybe it's more. You know, starting in the stratosphere. It's like the sound we make when every muscle in our bodies tenses up and then builds and builds to a total scream looking for release. First, you have the D-sharp. Then you have this E-natural below it. Then another E-natural enters an octave below that. Then suddenly, an F-sharp. But don't get comfy, it's followed by an F-natural right next to it. Wonderful, effective dissonance. Like I said in one of my very first episodes of the Soundtrack Show, this dissonance is where the good stuff lives. The tension created is necessary to scare the living crap out of us. Can I say crap? Well, cut me some slack here. I just walked us through a murder scene in a shower. If you're still with me, crap is probably fine to say. Ah, there's the soundtrack show theme. A nice respite from all the horrors that have unfolded through this episode. We'll be back next week for part two of The Music of Psycho. We'll discuss where music was used, where it wasn't, and we'll talk about the latter half of this classic Hitchcock film. Thank you. <laughs>